And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's Word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation, a sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of the Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Sophie Dollar. How's the last Sunday in June gone for you? I hope you've had a good month. Boy, this was a big month for us, John. B- birthday time. We're, we have, uh, let me see, my wife's in March, my son's in May, uh, my daughter, my mother-in-law when she was with us, my birthday, my daughter's birthday, my oldest son's birthday, all in June, so we've got a bunch of them. And we've got one more birthday, uh, our one more birthday, my daughter um we have a wedding in our our family plans and the new member of the when, family when is that, that uh, roughly is it next month or when? No, it depends <laughs> like everything else in our world it depends on the coronavirus right, right? i was just wondering about that how <laughs> yeah. that's going to work yeah well we're wondering it's about a it zoom too. wedding no yeah how is it going to work yeah uh but anyway his uh the new member of the family's birthday is in july and so that'll extend our birthday. But we've got this uh, parameter of birthdays in, in March, April, May, June that that just keeps us constantly. And then throw, and then throw, throw a Father's Day in there. And throw Father's Day in there. And, and then next Saturday being Independence Day. Yep. Oh, I tell you, we're just a party, party country, aren't we? We're just party, party, party. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us tonight for The Bible Live. We're going to... Um, we're going to talk tonight principally about the book of Esther, um, and and I hope that you'll join with it. It's going to be a great, great book. It's going to continue a theme that we've been um, that we've been following now for several weeks. We want to, uh, and I'll and I'll catch up with what we, t- we talked about last week uh, as well. Um, but because this this book again highlights a theme that we started on last week, looking at with uh, 
with Ezra and Nehemiah, remember we were talking about the fact that I, I want you to understand the Bible. I, I mean, you know, a lot of us think, oh, the Bible, that old book, you know, and it, those who know a little bit about it, you know, they know it has 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years, and, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and we know all these stories and all these things. And the, But the point is that a lot of people who who don't understand the book, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people kind of reject the book in our days. In a sense, uh, I think the the old book, the Bible, still has a certain amount of admiration, a residual admiration in our culture and society. There's certain admiration for it. Evidently, it has something, you know, something about it that's interesting, at least, because I mean, really, it. It's been around a long time, and and it so many people you know believe it, and they think it's. Are you ready for this? God's word. You know what does that mean? The Bible. <gasps> wow, God's word. What does that mean? Uh, and so, uh, what I want to try to do, if I possibly can, is I want to take the <gasps> all the mysticism. I mean, you can't remove mysticism and you don't want to remove mysticism and magic and excitement and uh from our existence as human beings we we want we want there to be more than just you know 8 hours a day of work going in eat this do that and do that and we're just like you know we eat, drink and be married and we didn't we have we get married and we have babies and we have a family and then we grow old and we die and that's it we want there's something within us that wants life to be more than just what is here. Because if life is more than just what is here on planet Earth, then what here, if we're tied into that, then what's here on planet Earth will be even greater. It'll be better. It'll be more fun. It'll be more exciting, more thrilling, more purposeful. One, uh, And so we, we don't want to remove the magic from life. And yet we don't want to you know, just kind of believe like fairy tales and and believe things that aren't true and aren't you know it, it needs to be is, is this relevant is this true is this reality and so that my dear friends that's what the bible is trying to get through to us that the the god of the bible is really there there is truly this a, a creator a god who immense beyond our imagination of incredible power and wisdom and intelligence and, and that could create and sustain this planet that we live not only this planet but the the galaxy the universe itself but a god who who could create and sustain this planet the life on this planet the plant life the animal life the the human beings that are here that we are a reflection of his character because we were created in his image there truly is far greater than any science fiction movie you could possibly imagine. There is a there is a genuine, true, and real uh, God who who created us, and He's involved with us, and He has a purpose for it, and He has revealed that purpose to us, uh, to humanity. He He has revealed not only through this book. Uh, the, as we talked about, there's there's general revelation that we see all around us. 
through creation, both the um, you know in the big picture of the universe and the galaxy, and the big picture of sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, the you know everything we see around us, and even even the human even human beings ourselves are part of that miracle of creation, uh, and and within us, and down to the atom and the molecules and the systems of oh, just incredible. Uh, the creation that we have, everything points to a, a creator. Uh, the design points to a designer. There's just no doubt about it, and there's no way of explaining it except that there, well, people try. And, but the idea of, of chance, just pure chance being, uh, that's why they keep having to go all of these billions and billions of years because they're trying to add to the idea of chance uh, all these billions of years, surely there, this one, this. See, if you have zero probability, there is zero probability. There is zero possibility that this, that this world could exist just out of nothing, just all of a sudden out of nothing. So there's zero possibility. So that so that some of those who want to reject a creator and the idea of a creator, they figure, well, if we can have, we can put billions and billions and billions and billions of years out in front of it, then we make it more probable. Well, you know, one billion, two billion, ten billion, fifteen billion, a hundred billion times zero is still zero. Uh, <laughs> there is no way it could not happen. The 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 idea the, there is a creator. And and the, he has the God has revealed Himself and told us something. He has stepped into time and space, and that's where we have special revelation. We have uh, general revelation that's creation, that's human consciousness, this special awareness that we have as human beings. That uh, you know, even to have the concept of God and a Creator, even to wonder where we came from and where we're going and why and all of these, even those very questions are a reflection that that our human consciousness and awareness that we have this special that gives rise to the idea of hope and uh, and and looking for eternal life in every culture, and every society through the ages. All of those things point to the idea of a Creator. Whether it's creation or human consciousness, the special awareness we have, which gives rise to hope and to beauty and to art, to imagination and so on. And then finally, conscience. Conscience. The, the idea of right and wrong. Where does that come from? What, what, what could possibly, you know, the, the, the lion out on the, on the, um, uh, out there looking at a herd of, uh, uh, um, Zebra going by and saying, hmm, "Should I eat that little zebra?" They don't wonder. They don't worry about the morality, the ethics of it, uh, in the animal kingdom. But human beings do. We look out for the weak one. We look out for the uh, for the the elderly. We love. We care. We choose. We live. We think it's wonderful when someone sacrificially uh, sacrifices themselves and gives of themselves to others. And why? You know, what would make that better than anything? Wh- where did that con- that conscience come from? Uh, is it just kind of willy-nilly, made up? It, it's certainly not working in our favor because all of us, we do, uh, we violate our conscience, all of us, one time or another. And so it's not like it, we, we want it in a way. We want it and we don't, in a sense. But the point is, is that we are created with that conscience. That conscience. All of these things make us look 
for God. And, and yet, uh, and I want to, here's the question I want to ask you tonight that we're going to, it's going to kind of be the basis of our conversation about the book of Esther. We finished up Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, finished the last chapters, uh, the last chapter, in fact, of Nehemiah as part of our reading this past, on Monday of this past week. Uh, we finished Nehemiah, and then we right, went right on into the book of Esther uh, this past week, and we're going to go back to the book of Corinthians this coming week. So we're going to, most of the book of Esther we finished up. And Esther, as you know, is this remarkable story about a young girl who wins a beauty contest and turns out to be uh, an individual, one of those very special people in the scriptures that she is courageous, uh, she's intelligent, and she, she... moves by faith moved by faith and devotion to God uh, she saves her people from being destroyed remember what I asked you last week I said uh, think of all the times you can in the Bible when uh, it seems like there were uh, an attempt was made and we you know we don't know sometimes it was an overt attempt on the on the on the part of people who were trying to kill uh, the 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 people of God. They tried to kill and destroy people who believed in the God, uh, the God of the Bible, and who were follow, who were following after God, seeking after God, and they they were trying to destroy them. Or they, in some ways, and we we do believe there is a spiritual enemy to God. There is a, there is a Satan. There is a devil. There are uh, and the the Bible makes it clear to us. Or, or fairly clear, I think, pretty clear. You can we'll make the case for it that there are uh, there is spiritual enemies of God in the angelic world, and they moved against God, and they they are influencing all they can. Uh, Satan and his primary weapon is information. His primary weapon is intel. Remember in the in the world of uh, military world today, and armies and so on, and battle and war. We understand today how important intelligence is. If you know more than your enemy knows, if you know what your enemy is going to do, when they're going to do it, then you you can win. You have a tremendous. And if you can you can confuse the intelligence, the intel of the enemy. If you can interrupt their command and uh, communication systems, then you can you can deceive the enemy and you can defeat the enemy. Well, that's what that's what Satan. Uh, is the primary weapon of Satan of the Bible, as Jesus points him out to us and others, is deception, is information, is lie. It's to get you not to believe, not to believe in God, to uh, either to think of it as ridiculous or to think of it as real, but having to be opposed. You know, whatever it is, whichever way you want to lean, uh, you know, you may be go into false religions of some kind of voodoo and demonology and this and that and the other. Or you may just be one of these modern skeptics, you know, and, and kind of turn up your nose at the idea of God. And, and you go after, oh, there's no God at all. There's just just evolution and so on. Either way, it, it, as long as Satan has you moving in his direction, he, he's going to let you stay there. He's going to let you keep moving in that direction. Uh, Wonderful book you can read about that from C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's called The Screwtape Letters. 
I know there's a great number of books written on the theme of Satan and, and demons and so on, but uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and it's the imaginary letters, the correspondence between uh, Satan, uh, uh, an older, more experienced demon of Satan, and his young uh, nephew uh, demon. And so it's the older demon giving lessons and in, in mentoring the younger demon as they try to uh, affect the temptation and destruction of a human man who's who's uh, struggling for faith and to believe in God and follow God and how they oh it's very enlightening it really is a very good read for one a very good story but also it's very enlightening about the tactics of Satan and in primarily you'll see his tactic is deception. There's a lot of wisdom in it if you want to know a little bit about that. But uh, So here we have, I was telling you last week, there are all of these attempts throughout the Bible to interrupt, to interfere, to destroy, to cut off, if possible, this redemptive plan that God had established. Remember our ideal, our idea, the idea of the Bible is that God the Creator, in the first place, God the Creator is a triune God. There are three distinct persons. The God of the Bible is a social being. He is a, in fact, he is, he is a, uh, he, he is a relational God in that there are three divine personages. Uh, we know them ultimately as God, as Jesus defines them and points them out in the New Testament as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three divine personages. Only one God. But three persons with all the attributes, each one of them have all the attributes of person, personality, uh, individual, uh, separate intellect, emotion, and will. And each of them has all the attributes of, of deity, uh, omnipotence, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal nature, uh, all of the omnis. All the, each of them is purely and totally God uh, uh, with all the power and all the, all the attributes of deity. So these three persons, the oneness comes from their devotion to one another. They are one in their love and devotion to each other. They are one in their character. They are one in their purpose and their intent. And they're finally, they're one in their action. They act in total, perfect harmony and oneness, uh, the Godhead, so that we can truly and absolutely know the God of the Bible as one God. Yet we understand there are three persons. In other words, at the very core of the Godhead of the Bible, there is personhood. There is relationship. And for that, God, uh, he didn't create us because God was lonely. No, he, God is totally and absolutely fulfilled and content within himself. And yet he created us to draw us created human beings with this unique ability. We have the unique ability to love. Love is a is a choice. We have a unique ability to, to believe, to trust. That's a choice that we make, that God has given us that capacity. Each and every human being has that capacity. Um, and that what God did is he created a race of beings, and then the idea is that he's calling out of the human race throughout every generation, all time, all the centuries past, and now today as well, Around planet Earth, 7.23 billion people, God is revealing himself to each and every individual at some level in some way, and we we uh, are drawn to the idea of knowing God, loving God, uh, serving God, desiring to, to know God. 
And for those who desire that and want to know him and trust in him uh, for that relationship, that is the purpose. It's, I will be their God. They will be my people. Uh, over 40 times in the Bible that phrase is used. I will be their God. They will be my people. And many other times, again, the same the same intent, the same Meaning, but maybe different words, but uh, over 40 times, I will be their God. They will be my people. God is calling out a people for himself from around the planet Earth. Now, in order to do that, it isn't just a matter of going, oh, everybody wants in, can just get in willy-nilly. God still has to deal with justice. He is a, a just and holy God. Uh, it, it just, uh, it's not like just any, any old body can come in. There had to be an atoning work. There had to be a, a work. See, what happened was there are two characteristics in the, in the nature of God, of the God of the Bible. There are two attributes that were at odds, that were in some ways contradictory. One is the, the justice, the holiness of God, that means that all sin must be condemned, all sin must be judged, all sin must be um, destroyed, actually. The soul that sins, it shall die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Sin requires a judge. Sin, uh, the consequences of sin is death. Spiritual separation from God and would, and, and ultimately even physical death as well, but, but more deep the the consequences of sin selfishness on the part of human beings we are we have an inherent irrevocable irresistible tendency to be selfish and sinful to ourselves desire what i want when i want it how i want it uh in every way we have that within us and so god there has to be some way for god's justice requires him to judge sin that sin must have its consequence and be just but at the same time we have this God's love, uh, in some ways an opposing uh, characteristic attribute of God, that he loves and desires a relationship with us. So how do you reconcile the, the desires of this justice, this absolute holiness and justice of God, and yet this, this love that desires the relationship? Well, that's what the cross of Christ, that's what the cross of Calvary, that's what the the Messiah, the Redeemer, was all about. And that's what the whole Bible, I was telling you the last week, the whole theme of the Bible is this redemptive plan that God has carried out that there had to be a man who would live a sinless, holy, perfect life and then who would be willing voluntarily to give his life to pay the penalty of those who in sin that that is the redemptive plan of god if you if you want to take a kind of a look at it in an understandable way read uh, cs lewis book uh, about the chronicles of narnia and read about the lion the witch and the wardrobe and it's in that story is wrapped up the idea aslan the, the aslan the lion dies gives his life voluntarily to pay the penalty of the the sin and the the, the era of uh, the child that fell into error and sin, and and asked, well, that was a picture then of of what Jesus the Messiah did for us. So the whole Bible from beginning to end is about this redemptive plan. Jesus is said to be the 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 um, Lamb that was slain 
from before the foundation of the world. In other words, John the Baptist called Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was going to be that sacrificed, atoning lamb of sacrifice that would purchase the redemption of humanity so that any of us who desire to know God and want to have a confident, secure relationship with him in this life and on into eternity, if we are willing to trust in the provision that God has made, through the, through the Lamb of God, through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who lived a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience, submission to the Father, then he who knew no sin became sin for us. If you are willing to trust and believe what God has done for us in his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, then by faith we come into that relationship with God and we, we, will, we are promised and told in Scripture that we will be with our God forever. We will have we will have discovered our ultimate purpose in life to know Him and enjoy Him forever. Okay, all of that said, now it sounds like I'm I'm trying not to get all totally absolutely theological on you, but I'm trying to lay it out like it is. This is the fundamental basic story of the Bible. All there are tons of stories. There's all kinds of adventures. There are all kinds of things that happen in Daniel in the lion's den and and uh, Jonah and the you know the the, uh, the the great fish that swallowed him and this story and this and another story. Even Esther that we we read about this past week, uh, this story about this this young Jewish girl who became the queen of Persia uh, under Xerxes, uh, the emperor Xerxes. Remember, if you saw that movie Three Hundred, uh, that was Xerxes. Um, and his son Artaxerxes and the, the the emperor of the Persian Empire. Um, well, she ra- was raised up during that empire. She became uh, the queen under Xerxes, and she was able, from that perspective, to save the Jewish people from being uh, to being destroyed. Uh, there, remember last week I said, "Give me some of these times like Seth and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses in Egypt and." 40 years in the wilderness and, and Joshua in the promised land and the judges, all those judges under in the time of the judges and then the kings, Saul and David and Solomon and all, all through that history of the Old Testament, as you read about it, the underlying battle is that, that the enemy of our souls, uh, there are attempts to cut off the divine, uh, the redemptive plan, the redemptive, um, the redemptive lineage the Savior of the Messiah who was to come through the people of Israel. And so you see the, 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 the people of God, the, 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 there was these attempts to cut it off. Well, this book of Esther is, is one more of those attempts. This is a very dramatic, very clear effort that was made in the time of Xerxes my and Artaxerxes. A clear effort that was made to cut them off, to destroy them and kill them which would have uh, cut off it, it, as well the divine redemptive plan of God. So it's very dramatic what's going on here. We'll talk about it more when we come back. We'll, we'll take apart a little bit the story of Esther, who she was, what she did, how she did it, when she did it, and what God was doing in that particular moment. So we'll come back in just a moment. Don't go away. This is the Bible live, and it's my deepest desire to make the Bible come alive to you so you enjoy it 
Dr. Stan Shelton with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway has taken care of the Dollar family that Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. This is The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. I want you to love this book. I want you to know and love this book. It will bring so much joy and delight to your life as you get to know the Bible. It's not just some old religious book and so on. It's got you know the the, the golden rule and love. Thou should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that, I mean, all of those are good and they're wonderful. And and it's going to make them even more special and more meaningful to you. But uh, beyond just the 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 Wonderful little nuggets that they're right there on the surface that we can take and use and bless us and guide. There, there's there's this deep, wonderful narrative of what God has done. The Creator Himself has done that He loves humanity, that He loves you, and that He is calling you to Himself to know Him and to enjoy Him in this life and on into eternity. If we could know that, what delight, what purpose, what what incredible joy! And freedom and, and release that brings to the human spirit to know that we are right with the Creator Himself, that we're that that He is at work in us, that He's oh, it just releases all the potential that each of us have as individuals and that, that we have as a human race. Oh, what a that's that's the, the potential, that's the power of this book. Uh, everywhere it is believed and taken seriously and trusted, and people say this is the truth, this is the true and living God, uh, the Creator, and we can know Him, and they they live on that basis of that relationship with God. Uh, it releases the potential. It releases the spirit of freedom and 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 generosity and 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 love, and that's what makes our culture and our society great. As we were founded on these principles from this book, and the further we move away from them, the more we're going to see of the chaos and the destruction and the waste and and the and the the depression that that we see growing, growing even in this twenty first century. It, it it's just impossible that we should be having this going on in uh, in this nation. We're, Founded on such hope and joy and power and goodness, and yet we are we are being led uh, into a time of of real real testing of what who are we and what we really believe as a people, uh, and so I'm I'm hoping that you're getting this, folks, that you're understanding the Bible has the answer for us. Return to God. Return to loving Him, trusting Him, worshiping Him. This isn't about just go to church and yeah, yeah, yeah. Church is important because God's people get together. We love each other. We help each other. We encourage one another. We're we're in this. We're not perfect people. We still need 
to support and encourage each other and so on. And we need to work together to to influence our society, our culture, a, a, a world that's that without hope, a world without joy, without salvation, without that eternal uh, life that we talk about. And so we need to work together to bear that message and to live that message of hope and life. So that's that's the now we're getting down to the kind of the white hot core of the Bible and what it's all about. It's not just religiosity and all those religious people and the, it's we and we as God's people we need to get beyond kind of peel off another layer of the onion and get deeper and deeper till we really understand what the Bible is about. And when we get the closer we get to the center of the Bible and its understanding of God and what he's doing in our times as well. Today, as we look out over the the time of biblical history, we see what God did then and in the lives of his people in that place and those times and through the, that those different eras and those different centuries. And now the same God is alive and well. He's moving in our times as well. The same God that moved in the life of Esther is alive today in the, in the days of the coronavirus. And the same God that could bring them through that with victory uh, uh, is the same God who can bring us through all these different challenges, whether it's China or or Iran or this challenge or that challenge or whatever other challenge. Uh, God can bring us through as we seek his face and trust him and obey him and, and live for him. God will bring us through. And that's what this old book is all about. Let's go back to the book. Uh, in this time, and get to know this great, great old book and the Bible and the author of the book himself. That's the purpose, ultimately, of the book, is for you to get to know the author. Well, I could go on and on, but I'll try not to here. We I reviewed last week's show about the attempts during history to interrupt God's redemptive plan, and we, we went through a whole bunch of those. Uh, I, I just listed out a few of them, we, and we just a very few of them, but they're all through the book. Uh, there are attempts on the part of the enemy of our souls and the part of the enemy of God's people to to uh, those who worship self and desire power and and so on and wealth and they 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 don't they don't pursue they're not chasing God and so on so they they have to fight against those who talk about selflessness about generosity about loving others uh, and and that that just won't do it and so uh, there are attempts to interrupt. God's plan, his redemptive plan. And I have to say, a lot of the blame probably a lot of time belongs to us as God's people. We don't walk the walk. You know, we talk the talk maybe, of, you know, the religious talk and this, that, but we don't we don't live it out. We don't live live out a life of love and sacrifice and generosity uh, for and caring uh, as we ought. Now, I'm not talking about being some kind of a naive sort of just goody goody two shoes because uh, sometimes it takes power and it takes courage and it takes uh, a strong character to stand up to evil and, to, and sometimes to resist uh, false falsehoods and uh, and be shallow but but just to be strong mature men and women of God uh, that's that's what the Bible is looking for and what God will God will use us. When we will do that, we won't be perfect. We still make mistakes, but we own up to our mistakes. We confess them. We know that we're not, and we we just keep loving people in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we live out, and God will bless that. He will work in and through and with us, and others will be attracted to 
the purpose, the meaning, the significance that we can demonstrate through our relationship with God. Well, let's talk about the book of Esther here for a little bit. Now, you know the essential story, I'm guessing, Some of you know the basic story, the emperor of Persia that took Esther to be his wife and queen. As we look in Esther chapter 1, it says King Xerxes was in high spirits uh, because of wine. Now, what's happening here, it says these events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia, At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Now, we want you to know uh, um, Xerxes in Hebrew is Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Uh, He reigned over the Persian Empire from 486 to 464. Uh, That's 22 years. He was the emperor. He was the son of Darius and the grandson of Cyrus the Great, uh, the founder of the Medo-Persian Empire. The events of the book of Esther likely occurred in the first half of King Xerxes' reign. Now, this is the same Xerxes, uh, is my understanding. This is the Xerxes that is portrayed in the movie The 300, uh, when Xerxes and his forces, they were powerful. They attacked uh, Greece. Remember when... um, what Leon, Leonidas, uh, the, with his 300 Greek warriors, uh, Athenians, they um, was he, were they Athenians, John? No, were they? Uh, they were um, they were Greeks, but they were uh, Sparta, Sparta, Spartica, Spartus, Spartans. Spartans. <laughs> that's Spartans. what. Yes, that's what they were. And they these 300, they they occupied this very small, thin pass that all of Xerxes' um, thousands and thousands had to pass through that very narrow pass, and they occupied that that terrain. Uh, a, a big storm wiped out many of their, their vessels that came to land in Greece, and they uh, they kept uh, the Persians from, from passing for a long, long time. Uh, a great battle. Uh, uh, Thermopolis is the name of the place. Thermopolis. So, if you know that, the, that's that. Some that has a portrayal uh, in, in that particular movie. There's a portrayal of Xerxes, and he was indeed a mighty emperor, but he was extremely egotistic. Uh, it took on the, the claim that he was God, that he was uh, he was the God Emperor of all the God, you know the emperors and so on and yes and yes there were many of those emperors did use that as part of their their attempt to gain power and to maintain power that they were god and gods uh, well that we you get a little picture then a tiny little picture of the personality the 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 um the ego the the hubris that was there in this man named xerxes well um what happens, and you may know the story, they start with a big party. They're going to, and what happened is the Persian generals and generals of that era, of that time, it was, it was typical, it was traditional, that when they were going to go to battle, that they would call together their, their, emperor, their rulers, their captains, their generals. Uh, and this says they had his nobles and his officials. He gave a banquet. And this usually it could go on for six months, a year, or longer. 
And basically, it was also a time of preparation for battle. Not only did they wine women in song and all that, but they would uh, talk about, they would build relationships and talk about uh, the battle that, that they were going to go to war to win. So they go to this this banquet uh, from all the people from the greatest to, to the least were in the fortress of Susa. This one, it said, lasted for seven days, this particular party. And, and the drinks were served and, and so on. In the middle of one of this, um, they had as much wine and drink as, as, as they wanted, according to verse 8. And then Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of Xerxes. And on the seventh day of the feast, Xerxes was in high spirits because he was drunk. Uh, he told them to to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. And my understanding from uh, from Hebrew sources, uh, Jewish sources about that it, that the language and the culture is that uh, he commanded that he wanted Vashti to come to his party uh, without any clothes on, wearing only the the crown on her head. Well, Vashti resisted doing that. Uh, uh, He wanted everyone to see how beautiful his wife was, but she resisted and would not do that. She refused to come. Now, uh, other sources say that she may have been at that time with child, that Artaxerxes was carrying the uh, Xerxes' son, uh, Artaxerxes, in her womb. And that that may have been one reason, but she refused to come. And so he, when he consulted with his uh, advisors, they said, uh, you know, you must be done with Queen Vashta. Look at verse 15. Uh, what penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through the eunuchs? And they said, well, she has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout the empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands. Uh, and so, and so... Um, Xerxes uh, deposed her as queen, Queen Vashti, and uh, he took her out off of the throne, and he uh, issued a decree. Now, you have to wonder, know this thing about the uh, special rule that the Persians had about their emperor's decrees. Once they were signed and, signed and sealed, they could never be revoked. They could never be taken back. Back. And so he issued a decree that, that deposed her, took her from the throne, and then he then had a, a national or empire-wide beauty contest, to put it, I guess, in simple, straightforward way. He, uh, he, be, he decided to uh, let us search the empire. Chapter 2, verse 2, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province and that you will find the most appealing after the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. And so uh, this appealed to the king's ego or whatever, and he put the plan into effect. And there, there you go, the basic story there. Esther, this young Jewish girl who must have been Without doubt, I assume she must have been a very beautiful young lady, a young girl. She was chosen to be the new queen of the empire. Now, remember, the Jewish people were very influential 
in the Babylonian Empire, in the Persian Empire. Under Daniel, there were others there. Uh, they had Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They rose to power and influence, especially in the administrative roles under the emperor. And so the, it tells us about one here named uh, Mordecai, who was of the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe that Saul was uh, the first king of Israel centuries before. It was from the tribe of Benjamin. And remember, Saul was supposed to kill a, a king called Agag, a, whipping, uh, a wicked king that, that, uh, that opposed them. And he, he did not do it. Samuel ultimately had to do it. And, um, well, this, on, uh, Mordecai is a descendant of the same tribe as Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And there's this other fellow in, in the um, Babylonian in the palace whose name is, uh, is um, Haman. And Haman is a very ambitious pol- political being. There, He is a descendant of Agag, that same Agag, back in the time of Benjamin. So now we have them coming together again. Haman hates uh, Mordecai for several reasons. One, he's jealous of him, and Mordecai kind of out outmaneuvers him in some ways. And, and, of course, what we see on the backside of the story is that God is working here uh, because Mordecai, uh, hey, hey, ah, I keep getting these backwards. Haman put into action a plan to destroy the people of Israel. He, he hates the Jewish people. Uh, he hates Mordecai. He hates the Jewish people. Uh, and he puts together a plan to have them destroyed, to kill them. And yet God is moving here through this young girl named Esther. He puts her in a place, and Mordecai, he puts them in a place of of responsibility and authority and influence that saves the people, uh, the Jewish people, from being destroyed there in the time of in the time of Xerxes. And Haman himself ultimately ends up being hanged on the. Uh, from the gallows that he builds, a 75-foot-tall high gallows that he wanted to hang Mordecai on and and, and, uh, create a day in which all the people of Israel could be slaughtered and killed, Uh, he himself is hung on that very gallows. So that's that's in a big picture. There's a lot of details as to how it happened. Uh, It works out in the book of Esther how uh, Esther took that position that she begins to move and work, uh, and she begins to have, uh, under the uh, leadership of one of the the young uh, eunuchs, I believe his name is Hegel, uh, Hegai, uh, he coaches her and, and helps her, and she uh, becomes the queen. Uh, and then uh, she finds out about this plot to destroy the Jewish people. And in chapter 3, and then God uses her. Mordecai, she is Mordecai's um, cousin, there is a familiar relationship, and he mentors her and says, for such a time as this, Esther, you were brought to power. God has done that. Now, he doesn't say God. That's one of the characteristics of the book of Esther is that there is no overt, explicit mention of God. There is a time, a call to prayer. Esther asked the people to pray for her. 
but there's no actual mention of God, and yet you see God's fingerprints all over this story as he moves uh, in, in sovereignly to preserve the people of Israel, not because they're so great and good. Again, God is merciful and good, and, just, and yes, he loves, but primarily remember there's a covenant relationship. God has promised to bring through the people of Israel uh, the the Jewish people, not a race, this is not an ethnic thing or a racist thing, but uh, he has promised to bring through that lineage of this people the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. And so they must, uh, he moves here through this young girl. He doesn't, uh, God does not um, run over the, the free will. He does not, uh, he does not abuse the free will of any individual but he works through those who love him and believe him. He works in and through and with them to bring about his solution uh, to this problem, that he saves the people of Israel, and we come down, down to the time of Purim. But what happens is Mordecai comes into favor because Mordecai saved. He hears a rumor that, that there's a rumor that there is an attempt on Xerxes' life, and he reveals that to his uh, to Esther, and she tells the king, and the plot against the king against uh, Xerxes is foiled. Then one night, Xerxes is reading in the history books, and he sees that, oh, I never did reward Mordecai for doing that. And so he rewards him, and and Haman has to, ironically, Haman has to go around on a horse and, and, and lead the horse. He says to Haman, what would you do as someone you really wanted to honor them? And Haman thought he was talking about him. Oh, he wanted, so he said, oh, I'd put him on his wonderful horse and lead him around, and, and the herald would have to say, this is the way God, this is the way Xerxes rewards those who please him. And he says, okay, do that. Do that for Mordecai. You lead his horse around. And so Haman had to do that, and, of course, he hated that particular assignment, and it made him hate all the more uh, Mordecai and the Jewish people. And then they know about, they learn about the plot, and Esther has to go to the king. Uh, she has to go to the king and and uh, ask him for mercy and tell him about this plot and figure out a way to avoid this day of slaughter uh, that that uh, that Haman has put into plan and this plan he has put into action. So Esther goes to the king. Now the risky thing there. This is chapter five. the The risky thing is that if Esther the queen goes to the king's chamber and he does not hand, reach out the scepter, hold out the gold scepter to her, then she would have to be killed. That, that, that was a rule of the, of the throne, of the palace. And so she's risking everything, going to the king. And he, look at chapter 1, he says, when he, uh, the king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance, and when Esther walked in, he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Then the king asked her, what do you want and what is your request? And she told him about uh, Haman. He said, I would like for you to have a banquet prepared for him. And so uh, uh, Haman comes and she tells him about Mordecai. He's reminded of Mordecai. And that's the the first banquet is Haman's plan to kill Mordecai is thwarted. And he has to, instead, he has to walk Mordecai around on this beautiful horse and tell this is the way God would honor 
This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And so uh, the king said to Haman, you've got to do that. Leave out, and you must do that for Mordecai. So then uh, Esther has to go a second time to the king's presence, and he does. And he again, he receives her by holding out the, the golden scepter, and she then says that there is a plan to kill my people, and and she reveals the plan, and a decree is issued. He can't he can't wipe out the decree he already signed, which would have been a res, resulted in the death of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. They could be killed at wantonly killed by the people of Persia uh, it, by his first decree, but he signs a second decree, which gives them the right to defend themselves, uh, and uh, they are able to do that. On the June on June twenty fifth, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews and the highest officers, the governors and the nobles, and all 20, 127 provinces. And, and they said that the Jews had gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, annihilate anyone of nationality or who would attack them, or their children or their wives, and take their property. Uh, of their enemy of that they of their property, the day chosen for this event throughout the province of King Xerxes was March the seventh of the next year, and this decree went out. And so uh, this was this was established on the basis of the throwing of the dice, which is what the word Purim means. The dice of the lots that were thrown, and that's why the Jews celebrate the celebration, the holiday called Purim. It's based on this story from the book of Esther. And the, the Jews come out victorious, are able to defend themselves and, and protect themselves and their families and so on. So again, this is one of those remarkable, dramatic attempts uh, on the part of the enemy to cut off and destroy the, uh, the, people, the Jewish people and who are to be the, the conduit through which the Messiah, the Redeemer, the re- the Savior of the world would come through them. And you see a dramatic attempt here to cut off that lineage, to cut off that potential. Uh, and that's that's the story behind the story. Uh, and there's, there's, it's, it's an amazing tale. It really is just remarkable. But it's, it's remarkable like how God used Joseph down in Egypt to keep the Jewish people from dying from the famine and to preserve them. And Moses... Preserve them from being destroyed down in Egypt and losing their 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 identity as a people. So we see all all of that and, and, and these dramatic moments in which God acts to preserve His people and to preserve the redempt to continue the redemptive plan of God. So when we come back, I want you to give me a call if you'd like two ten three four zero. 9585 210-340-9585 I'd like to hear any of your comments about this uh, book of Esther about what God is doing about how God has preserved his people and what application could you get from the book of Esther for the times in which we are living today in the 21st century what lessons could we receive from the book of Esther give me a call 210 210- 340-9585 and the Bible Live will be right back. Don't you dare go away.
You're listening to the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. We are back. Our final segment here. Give me a call if you'd like. I'd love to hear from some of you with your impressions, your thoughts about this incredible story of this young. Incredible means unbelievable. It's not unbelievable because it really happened. Historically accurate and true, and God really worked. Uh, so I won't say incredible, but this remarkable story of this amazing young lady and this this time and a, and a most amazing God. Uh, can you imagine the, the the God that could bring about this without abusing or offending the free will of any individual could still bring about the uh, this this incredible purpose of preserving the people, uh, the Jewish people, the people, those who believe in him, trust in him, that he's preserving them, allowing the redemptive plan to continue forward here in the time of Xerxes. Um, in the era of the of the Persian Empire. So, uh, if you'd like to give me a call, I'd like to hear your thoughts about Hadassah, the the Hebrew name of this young lady named Esther. Uh, maybe there's some lesson. Maybe there's something that we could take from this story of Esther for the 21st century that we're living in and now. That we're these remarkable times of this coronavirus and this is happening and and there seems to be this kind of this lunacy that's been set loose across our nation of these cries for reformation and revolution and trying to tear the country down and destroy the nation here uh i was just commenting with john in the room there this all these calls for reformation we don't really need reformation we need transformation. We need God to step into the lives of people and to his people. Those of us who know him and love him and serve the Lord, we need to see him transform us into modern-day Esthers, that in our world, the little circles of influence that we enjoy, be they small or great, that we will be faithful and true and courageous in our time, in our place, uh, just as uh, Esther was in hers in her moment. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of things we can learn. Maybe you have an idea. Maybe you have a thought about what's going on in our world today. And how does, how does, what are the lessons we might learn from the book of Esther? Meanwhile, though, we did this past week as well. We moved on from the book of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. And we moved on into the New Testament. We began and picked up uh, with the book of Corinthians that Paul wrote a number of letters to the uh, churches in Corinth. Uh, we have two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we call them. 
there were probably one, possibly two other letters that are mentioned in the text of, the, of these two letters that give us the idea that he wrote a, another one or two letters to them that we don't have. But um, Corinth is an amazing situation, a remarkable city uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, on the, it was a port city. Uh, very wealthy. It was very, very corrupt, very immoral. Uh, there were archaeological digs there revealed housing and, and for well over a thousand uh, w- women of, of the night, we might call them. Uh, there was a, there was a, 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 a temple there to um, Epaphroditus, I believe it was. Uh, the temple there was also was where they used uh, sexuality as part of their worship. And that's, um, yes, it was Aphrodite. That was one of the things that helped make Corinth such a terribly wicked, wicked city, an immoral port city, plus that temple of Aphrodite. And therefore, the the believers there at Corinth, uh, and if you remember, there was uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira that were there. There was... Uh, there was there was a, a solid church, uh, a gathering of assembly of believers that, who had trusted in in Christ and believed in Him, and were were seeking to follow after the Lord. And yet they had incredible temptations. Uh, there was remarkable pressure upon them uh, to to compromise their faith. And there's so many different ways that they could do that. And you, you look at some of these now in the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and by the way, I'm still waiting on a phone call, 210-340-9585. If anyone would like to comment about what was going on there in the time of Esther, even in the time now after Jesus, here we have uh, um, the Apostle Paul going, living at a, for a time there in Corinth in this very difficult place. And yet God brings them through incredible pressure that they were under. Um, there was a tremendous amount of temptation all around them. Uh, and there were some things that some steps that call, Paul ta- called upon them to take uh, to to be able to separate themselves and to experience the freedom. That's one of the great themes of the books of Corinthians is that freedom where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, so Paul is talking to them about them walking and, and living under the power of the Spirit of God, that they have the mind of Christ, that the, they are the bodies, are the temple of the Holy Spirit dwelling within to guide them and escort them faithfully and unfailingly to glory. So Paul reminds them continually, and he corrects some of the, uh, the problems of division. Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the, the church was experiencing a lot of divisions. Some were saying, I'm... I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. They, there was a lot of competition to see who was going to be the leader. And Paul then writes and says, I am a slave uh, to Jesus Christ. I write to you under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so since there were divisions in the Corinthian church, Paul uses whose name does Paul use ten times in the first ten verses of the book of Corinthians. Ten times in the first ten verses, Paul uses the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, to clarify, to emphasize who all teachers and preachers should emphasize. Uh, the, the, it wasn't talking about himself, 
but about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So Paul writes to them in the middle of these problems of morality problems and they're having, uh, and he gives them some guidance and counsel and advice to, uh, to, to live. Now, there's a wonderful passage in chapter 2 where it says, We have the mind of Christ. How is it that we have the mind of Christ? What does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. That as God's people, as God's children, we have an insight now. We have a perspective. We have a worldview that is complete, that is perfect, that is beautiful, that makes sense of the world around us. It makes sense of our individual lives and experiences, and it makes sense of the the, the rising and falling of empires. It makes sense of human history and the human experience like no other. Now, it doesn't mean we all instantly, magically have that, but we have that. That is the perspective. In, in, in fact, that is the perspective that God's Word, the Scriptures, give to us. And as we come to faith in God through Christ, the Spirit of God comes to give us, and we begin to get uh, as we, the first step toward getting God's thoughts and knowing the mind of Christ is to trust in God and God's redemptive plan. And then we grow. We mature. We begin to understand more and more and more about who God is and what He's doing uh, all through the Scriptures and what He's doing in our lives and what He's doing in the world around us. We have the mind of Christ, and we can grow in that mind. Follow of what the Scriptures tell us. Follow this, uh, the divine uh, narrative here, the divine history that God has shown us, that He has been working and, and speaking and acting all throughout the history of mankind, as we see reflected uh, here in in the Bible, a part of that history, very we see clearly uh, God at work uh, in and through the people of the world, as we see these examples in the story of of His working with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel, and so on, and bringing on to the time of the Messiah. Uh, so we have the mind of Christ. That's what that means. And so we let's live in that mind mindset, folks. Let's learn to to think and move and act on the basis of who God is, the God of the Bible, and what He is doing. Let's not get all panicky and distracted by other things and problems and kind of oh, just rub our hands together and say, oh, what are we going to do? We are the people of God. God is at work, and so we just look for His lead. We be salt. Be light. Be salty salt and be enlightening light uh, that God has chosen you to be during the time of the coronavirus. Right now in our world, we can stand for the the righteousness, for the truth of God, and to love and faithfully serve our neighbors and those around us uh, and, and pray about our nation and pray about our decisions when we go to the polls. Man, I always wondered what in the world would Jesus have done if he had lived in the time of a of a uh, representative republic, what if the what what would Jesus have said if if people of that era elected their officials? Now, don't don't get me wrong, and and you know this to be true. People have a way of influencing, and and they can rebel, and that's what we see in the scripture. But now we live in the time of actual representative representative republic where we actually elect those who will serve us, those who will represent us and make the laws of the land and set the pace. And what in the world would Jesus, what would Paul have said uh, if they lived in this time? 
They lived in times when they, the Roman Empire ruled uh, over everything. They, they lived in time of, of dictators, uh, and and they still uh, talked about God's power at work. Even more so should we know that God is at work through his people, and we must be salt and light as God has commanded us to be. So the book of Corinthians talks out. He's reminding them, even in that very difficult place of Corinth, that city, so many temptations, so much immorality, uh, and he he gives you are indwelt by God's Spirit. You have the mind of Christ. Walk in that power. Walk in that confidence. Uh, walk in in, in in that truth, and and that you can be overcoming. That God will use you, uh, and powerfully you. And He did. He did use the people. And they had their problems. They sure did. There was people. There was a. Uh, there was incest going on. There was all kinds of immorality. They were, they had some certain problems uh, because they were in the city of uh, uh, the temple of Epaphrodite. Uh, remember, they had temple sexuality involved in the temple worship, and so women uh, there were over a thousand temple prostitutes. And, and so Paul warns the people of Corinth about the women of the of the church to be modest. Uh, to, to not to be loud, to not to be outspoken, to not draw attention to themselves, because it, it, it more important here than perhaps anywhere else, they needed to be a c- contrast with the, that temple of Epaphrodite. They need to be men, women of, of, of modesty, women of beauty, yes, and, and of influence. Um, Paul wasn't anti-woman by any stretch of the imagination. He recommended later on in his ministry, he sent women to and asked that they be received as if you were receiving me. Uh, he, he honored women. He knew that they could teach, they could preach, they could share, they could minister. And yet in this case, he's telling them, be careful now here in Corinth because of the, this presence that you're in. And he also talks to them about eating meat that is sacrificed to idols. Uh, this was you know, these these. Uh, other religions, uh, Paphrodite and so on, they would also uh, sacrifice meat and cut up meat, and then they would sell it. In the uh, the merchants would sell it in the little stores behind the, the temple, and Christians would wonder, well, can we? Is it right? Can we even eat that? And and, and Paul gives a great wisdom of freedom there. He said, don't make others. We don't want to make others take advantage of our freedom, the liberty we have in Christ. Uh, so we don't want to make the weaker brother stumble. Uh, but at the same time, we have the freedom. He, he's giving the dynamic there in his solution there for the, the church in Corinth. Uh, we don't want to make our our weaker brothers and sisters stumble. We have freedom to to do that if we want, but the principle of love. And so we read chapters 1 through 12 of the book of Corinthians this past week. And, and uh, these are some of the things that Paul lays out for them. He said, you know, that we are the people of God, that we have the mind of Christ, that the Holy, a major teaching here is that the Spirit of God, Paul reveals to them, God's Spirit has now come to every believer, and He is going to teach you. He is going to guide you and deepen your understanding of who God is and what He's doing. And so the Holy Spirit, He reminds them of the Holy Spirit's presence within them. Uh, and as I mentioned to you before, the Bible is a book. Uh, but it is a book unlike any other book in the universe. What other book can claim to 
have over 40 authors, shepherds, farmers, tent makers, physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and kings, and yet they speak with one voice, a harmonious presentation over, over a period of 1,500 years. There, there is this, this essential harmony in, in, throughout the book. You, know, you wouldn't get that kind of harmony in, in, in <laughs> when I'm teaching out at Lackland. I'll talk to the men and women in, in front of me. There'll be 50 to 100 young trainees, and I'll say, we wouldn't have you – know, I could throw out a topic here for conversation, and we wouldn't get that kind of harmony. Even here among us, we all speak the same language. We're from the same country, the same culture, the same society. Uh, we wouldn't have that ha- kind of harmony at all. But here you have this oneness, this one singularity message in the redemptive plan of God throughout these 1,500 years in these 40 different authors of all these different kinds of backgrounds. backgrounds. Then they write... Some of their writing is history, it's poetry, uh, it's instructions and teaching, it's prophecy, preaching. But they all point to the same incredible God who claims to have directly inspired it and is revealing himself to humanity through this book and his revealing his plan for humanity. So while it's easy to admire such a book as this, it's a Herculean task to understand it. How do we even start to read a book like this? Uh, and, and that's I've been in it since I was eight years old. I've been reading and memorizing and studying and preaching it and teaching it around the world, 35, 40 countries of the world, just trying to teach young men and women all over planet Earth to, this book and to get to know the God of this book. And, and and yet still I'm learning their principles and their their guidelines and understandings that I'm but it's so exciting and thrilling and that's why I'm so thrilled to present it to you. And fortunately folks we're not reading the Bible alone. Jesus promised that when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth. Look in John chapter 16 and, and also right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 10 through 15 God reminds them to that the Holy Spirit is there to teach you and to guide you. And, and, he, and he reminds them of the promise that Jesus gave to them. Uh, and Jesus prayed that the Holy Spirit would be active in revealing the truths of Scripture to his followers. And we should expect that. We could expect the people of Corinth to do that. And we should expect Jesus' prayer to be answered in our lives today as well. And it's his promise in our heritage that the Holy Spirit teaches us through God's word. There's just so much here in the book of Corinthians. God tells Jesus, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul tells them about these divisions in the church. He points them to our oneness and our unity in Jesus, the Messiah. He talks about God's wisdom, and he says that the the people of the world, those who don't re- respect God, don't accept God, they think of the gospel as 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 silliness. As just, uh, why would the people of the world? Why would the people of the world think of God's word as being silly, as being, uh, you know, uh, meaningless and, and so on? Why would you think that would happen? Why would God's, Why would those who don't believe the Bible think of it as silliness? Uh, I'm trying to find the, the my note here in that particular passage. I remember uh, making a note about it that they those who are outside the faith they think of the it's foolishness he says they think of the gospel as foolishness uh, and, and just remember though what the bible's the the, the gospel says uh it says that we should uh 
uh, by giving our life away, we, we save our life. By, by giving, we get more. We, it's, all, it's filled with paradoxes, with, with seeming contradictions. That we are to love our enemies. That we're uh, all of these. That's why, apart from God, those things sound kind of silly. Why should we live selfless, generous lives and give our lives away and benefit of others? Uh, but if God is there, if He is with us, then our our love bank is full. Our love bank account, and we can afford to give all of that love away to the people around us, and we can love them and care for them, and, and we don't have to be selfish and grabbing for ourselves. That that's why that the the people of the world. But we have to demonstrate that it's true that God is indeed there, and that we then have the ability to give our lives away in service. Of others, uh, that's a great lesson from the book of First Corinthians. Um, we see Paul and Apollos. We see Paul, chapter four, Paul's relationship. Uh, he had spent a great deal of time with them. He condemned spiritual pride uh, there in chapter five. You remember, Paul had lived there in Corinth with them and taught them and walked with them. He knew what they were going through, the struggles. Uh, he encourages them. Uh, he tries to bring about unity among them, that they should not sue one another and go have lawsuits with other Christians, but that they set, they should settle in love uh, with each other uh, and generosity and patience with each other. They should avoid sexual sin. Here they were surrounded by the immorality, much like we are today. It's all around us on our television, our cable TVs, and our computers, and all, uh, all around us we see uh, temptation. Uh, the idea of sexual sin and and God, the enemy has used human sexuality, which God created for a purpose. God created uh, as a as a uh, as a fountain of joy and delight uh, and, and great pleasure for the humans that we could know and love uh, our spouses and that we can bring about children, the great joy of children into our homes and families. Uh, but we have made sexuality into something that is so painful and, and, and tragic and, and robbed it of joy. Uh, and that's what happens. And so Paul warns them, avoid sexual sin and and, and, and live uh, as God would have us live. And then we can experience the joy and the delight for which God created marriage. In chapter 7, he gives instruction about marriage, how to experience marital harmony and oneness, and what marriage is a picture. Marriage is a picture of the relationship of Jesus, the Messiah, with his people. We are, uh, he is the groomsman. We are the bride of Christ. And he points that out, that, that that's the picture that we should see carried out through our marriages. And my relationship with Suzanne and hers with me and you and your family and your husbands and wives. And so when we abuse that, we, we act against it. We, we bring great tragedy. We bring great pain. Uh, and difficulty, but if we follow God's plan, uh, we will find and be faithful in that plan, we'll find his blessing and we'll find that joy, we'll find growth, maturity and strength. Then he talks about food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8, and then Paul gives up his rights. He says, I have a right to be receive payment as a minister of God, but I give up that right so for love for you. Well, that's what I can tell you from the book of 1 Corinthians uh, up to chapter 12. Next week, we'll start with the great chapter, the chapter of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I hope you'll join me next week here on The Bible Live.
Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on the Bible Live, weeknights at 9.30 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on the The Bible Bible Live Live Quiz Show. Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and the Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world. 